Hi there, I'm Matthew Sheffield. Thanks for joining me for another Theory of Change episode. Before we get started, I just wanted to do a little quick housekeeping. We are part of the Flux Media Network, so that's flux.community, and you can go there to get more articles and podcasts about politics, media, religion, and technology. And then if you want to go to the Theory of Change section on the site, just go to theoryofchange.show, and you'll be redirected to right where you need to go. And we've got transcripts, and video and audio, and also links to all the popular podcast platforms if you want to subscribe in there, and I certainly encourage that as well. And if you like what we're doing, please go to patreon.com slash discoverflux. You can certainly use your support. We don't have any corporate sugar daddies funding this program or right-wing billionaires, and needless to say, left-wing billionaires are pretty few and far between, and they also are not interested in media, unfortunately. So with that out of the way, let's get started. Just as the 2020 elections were fading into America's rearview mirror, Elon Musk, the CEO of Tesla and SpaceX, cast the political and media worlds into chaos by taking ownership control over Twitter. Now, most people don't use Twitter because they find it too weird and disjointed, but it is actually the place online where most of America's political junkies, activists, politicians, and journalists come to talk. It all seems to have started as a joke, however. Musk offered to buy Twitter at a price of $54.20 per share, 420, of course, being the very, very old reference to marijuana. And after his Tesla stock price went south dramatically, Musk tried to get out of the deal, but was forced into it by a lawsuit from Twitter. And so he was forced to take control and since then has brought the site into complete chaos, reinstating a number of accounts that had been banned for promoting hatred and violence and disinformation, including most famously Donald Trump. Donald Trump has not returned to the platform yet, but many people who were banned from the platform previously, including accounts that had misgendered people and had also engaged in dramatic disinformation, have returned to the platform. There's a lot to talk about here, and a lot of it fits into this larger tradition of the libertarian right within Silicon Valley and the American political right as a whole. And so there's a lot to discuss here, and I'm happy to be joined today by two different panelists. Our first one is Jacob Silverman. He is the co-author of the forthcoming book, Easy Money, which is a book that he's co-writing with the actor Ben McKinsey. And, in, and the subtitle of it is Cryptocurrency, Casino Capitalism, and the Golden Age of Fraud. So happy to be here with you, Jacob. Thanks for having me. And then we're also happy to be joined by Chris Lehman. He is the Washington Bureau Chief at The Nation, and he's written a lot about the political right over the years and I've done great work with that. So we're happy to have you here as well. Thanks for having me. We'll get started here first with you, Jacob. So you have kind of looked at more of the contemporary angle of some of this in your recent journalism, including a piece that you wrote for the New Republic. So tell us, I guess, first of all, the context for Musk. And I mentioned a little bit in the intro, but who is he and where did he come from? And has he always been this sort of right wing troll, basically, that he currently is operating as? 
Well, to answer the last question first, I'd say I think the the right wing trollishness has definitely come more to the fore in, in recent years, most prominently with the recent acquisition of Twitter, where you can really see his social relationships playing out in real time, basically. But Elon Musk, as a lot of folks know, he grew up in South Africa, came to the U.S. There's some dispute about what kind of college degree he has, because a constant thing about Musk is that he lies and or has exaggerated or just otherwise obfuscated throughout his whole career, really. So Musk got a degree. He used to say he had a degree in physics, I believe, but some recent reporting indicates it's in economics. He was an early executive at PayPal. He merged a company called X.com with basically with Peter Thiel's company and created PayPal. He is original member of the PayPal Mafia, as it's called, which has become really influential in Silicon Valley. A lot of companies came out of that. So he's associated with folks like Peter Thiel or David Sachs or Max Levchin, Reid Hoffman, all these folks, mostly on the political right in one form or another, who started at PayPal, made enormous amounts of money, and then made even more money investing in other companies. Famously, Musk then became part of Tesla. He often presents himself as a founder of Tesla. He is not. Similarly, he often presents himself as a founder of PayPal. He is not. But actually, a very interesting part of Musk's exit agreement with PayPal was that they describe him as a founder. They kind of retconned him into the company lore as a founder, but he is not. And so this kind of exaggeration of credentials and of his place in these companies is something that you see throughout his career. I believe he is the founder of SpaceX. And so now, technically, he's the CEO of three companies, of SpaceX, Tesla, and Twitter. And Musk's career has always been sort of a high wire act. He has borrowed a lot of money throughout his career. I mean, he's a very rich man, by some measures, the richest man in the world. But for probably the last couple of decades, he's often borrowed against either his holdings, his stock holdings, or simply borrowed from friends. Earlier in his career, he was borrowing a lot of money that was simply in his lifestyle. I think what's important to know about Musk is that one, He's not the most reliable source, especially about his own sort of holdings and his own career and actions. And that despite being enormously rich and being rich for a long time, he's often been on a very shaky financial foundation, which I think is certainly the case even today. You mentioned in the intro that Musk's Tesla holdings have plummeted in value, and that's why he tried to get out of the Twitter deal. So he's always been sort of precarious in a way. Maybe precarity is the wrong word. But again, this sort of high wire act where you know, there, there's possibility to swing for the fences or possibility to lose it all. And, and that's sort of the, the carnival barker type personality that Musk, I think, has. Yeah. And in that respect, he has some similarities with Donald Trump there, for sure. Sure. He, he's a showboater. He very much curries favor with the public. And in recent years, it, it's impossible to deny that he sort of turned into this white right wing trollish type. It's actually been somewhat revealing who he brought into Twitter, how he talks about dispelling the scourge of wokeness from Twitter, and who he talks to on Twitter, which is almost exclusively his friends and right-wing influencers and random sycophants. So I don't know if Musk has a concerted ideology of his own, but he talks about free speech as a free speech fundamentalist of sorts. But in practice, he is right-wing, I would say. And you can see it playing out in his relationships, in his actions, in his politics, and all those sorts of things. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, and that's, I think that's true. And and we'll get further into that. So, but there is kind of a historical aspect here, Chris, to Musk and his recent behavior. He fits into a tradition of libertarianism on the political right and actually within Silicon Valley itself from the very beginning. You want to talk about any of those angles you prefer here, and then we'll go from there. 
Oh, sure thing. Yeah, it's definitely the case, the history of the American right, especially from the end of World War II up to the present day, is full of these kind of obscenely wealthy hobbyists. One who leaps to mind is Robert Welch, who is the founder of the John Birch Society and a candy mogul, created appropriately enough and gave the world the sugar daddy. (laughs) So yeah, because of the structure of the American social order, people who have immense wealth automatically command a great deal of public deference and respect. They're treated as these kind of culture heroes, even though, as Jacob pointed out, Musk acquired Tesla and didn't actually create the the model for the electric car. He is nonetheless has this vast following of, of kind of other tech bros who see him as this person who is doing all this benevolent work to advance progress and, and move humanity to a, a better future. It's same with the SpaceX empire. What's interesting is that Both Tesla and SpaceX are immensely dependent on government contracts. So you have this additional paradox of a part of the economy that, which is also true of Silicon Valley, the whole revolution was rooted in government-funded projects like DARPA. And yet there is this fierce hatred of government best embodied by Musk's former colleague, Peter Thiel, who Jacob mentioned earlier. Who is also dependent on the government heavily. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) Volunteer empire is both scary in terms of the advance of the surveillance state and almost completely on government contracts. So there is this paradox that actually goes all the way back to the initial Cold War where you had, in the part of the country where you are, Matthew, this vast aerospace empire took root in Southern California, and it was major driver of the post-war boom. It recruited a lot of educated engineers, physicists, and the like, and they glommed on to this libertarian ideology. I think libertarianism both appeals to the the kind of one quick fix kind of model of thinking of social problems and progress. And there's not really a diplomatic way to put it, but it appeals to an arrested adolescent mindset. People who are who have been brought up as Elon Musk definitely has to see themselves as the golden child of fortune, as people who are the default. These are all white guys. <laughs> and they are just most of them born wealthy as well. Yes. And they are un- understood as the sort of natural arbiters of progress and drivers of history. So libertarianism is an attractive ideology to this social cohort because it basically reflects back to them the ideal world in which they think they have legitimate power. So it's not shocking, even though Musk took a while to evolve into the fully pure right libertarian figure he is, all the social determinants were there at the outset. And certainly the PayPal mafia, which Jacob referenced, I think future historians will regard this as like a disastrous formation of a massive transfusion of capital to people who are kind of sociopath, who have contempt for other social groups and have this kind of immensely hubristic understanding of themselves as a spirit of market justice incarnate. Yeah. And the other thing that's kind of interesting, though, is that in the 2000s slash 2010s, the people who had this ideology, except for Peter Thiel, kind of, they weren't identified with the Republican Party explicitly. And in some regards, they actually seem to have 
seen themselves as on the left. Right. Um, they were and, socially liberal values, tolerance, diversity. As we're seeing at the exodus of Twitter illustrate, Silicon Valley is heavily dependent on underpaid immigrant labor. <laughs> the remaining core of engineers at Twitter are people on I2B visas because they don't have a choice, really. If they leave the company, they'll many of them may be forced to leave the country. So yeah, and there was this there was a famous article in the nineties called the California Ideology, which tried to set out the worldview of the emerging tech industry. And it did stress there was this sort of residual Bay Area kind of lifestyle liberalism that survived the sixties. But I think this article was prescient in a lot of ways because he did zero in on libertarianism as the kind of nexus of belief in this new socioeconomic formation. Yeah. Jacob, did you want to add anything on that point there? Well, I think the California ideology essay is great. I'm blanking on the names of the co-writers there, yeah. but it, it, you see it being passed around still these days or on Twitter elsewhere because it really did, as Chris was talking about, chart this path of how did these people start as hippies who were sort of countercultural or doing sort of experimental things, even in the context of like Xerox Park, that research lab. And then within 10 to 20 years, they're all working for Microsoft and big corporations, but still sort of consider technology as a driving force and even as a countercultural force. And so I think you see a lot of the kind of justifications also that people in tech use for their actions or for the power to themselves in the California ideology and in the new iterations of it. They certainly do see themselves as the movers of history. And also, I think that the more recent change is that there's a real exhaustion with politics as sort of standardly done politics as usual. And that I find very understandable because, I mean, just look around, of course, but that there's sort of a dissonance there because a lot of these companies are heavily involved in government contracts or dependent on even just political connections and lobbying. But at the same time, they express a real disgust or even contempt for everyday people and politics. And so they think that technology and their own actions will be, will be kind of drivers of progress. And if other people have a problem with that, too bad. <laughs> yeah. And just to go back in the history further, you look at the early Silicon Valley entrepreneurs. So whether that's Andy Grove with Intel or Steve Case, who was involved in a number of different things, including AOL in the 80s, Scott McNeely with Sun Microsystems. Basically, all of these people just naturally kind of gravitated toward the Republican Party in the 80s and 90s. And Microsoft was kind of an aberration in that they tried not to be political. They just thought that government didn't know what they were doing, and so they were just going to ignore it. And so they kind of opted out. And IBM was obviously a huge, huge player in the 70s, 80s, 90s. They were bipartisan givers. And so this whole idea that Silicon Valley was just this incubator of left-wing elitism is just nonsense. And as a historical matter, as things got going, there was kind of a bifurcation with the Christian right and some irritation with them. Is that is that anything that you, you've come across at all? Research, Jacob? Well, you, certainly you don't hear a lot of religion expressed in Silicon Valley. I mean, there is actually a, a contingent of Hindu nationalists, I would say, who are big Modi supporters, but that that's not necessarily something we need to dwell on. But during the Obama administration, you had very close ties between Silicon Valley and the government. But 
I think what we've seen in the last couple of decades is that there's a certain malleability to tech politics. I mean, they'll work with who's in power. And by default, a lot of them do lean right because they're basically corporatists. But you don't really see much of the kind of religious nationalism or ideology that you might see on sort of the mainstream right, Mitch McConnell types and people like that. They more represent the corporatist wing of the Republican Party and have found a pretty comfortable home there. Of course, I mean, neoliberal Democrats have been just as embracing. You had numerous Obama officials go to work for big tech companies, Amazon, Uber, other places. So in a lot of ways, there's an evolving bipartisanship here. But if you ask a lot of these folks, they will say, oh, I am sort of socially liberal. But when it comes down to it, they the kind of forces of concentrated power and wealth that we do more often identify with the right. Yeah. Well, and Chris, I mean, what do you think is sort of responsible for this transition? To me, it seems like the Democratic Party decided to start returning to its roots in terms of economic populism. And that basically triggered a lot and, of these I mean, I libertarian think A wing allies. of the Democratic Party expressed interest in economic populism. There's still, I would argue, the dominant wing of the party is still very much aligned with corporate interests. Silicon Valley has been a major funding base of the party across the past 30 years. So, yeah, I think what Jacob was saying is true, that any sort of big corporate interest is going to be purely instrumental, and certainly in terms of its giving patterns. We saw this even with the collapse of the FTX empire under Sam Bankman-Fried, who had been the number two donor for the Democrats, But his partner, whose name I'm blanking on now. Ryan Salome. (laughs) Yes, thank you. Also gave extravagantly to the Republican Party because they want to game the regulatory system in Washington. So whoever is in charge, they're going to need influence. But I do think it has been true, sort of going back to the California ideology piece of it, that the reigning worldview in Silicon Valley has always been anti-government. There is both this kind of anxiety of influence, hatred that dates all the way back to the aerospace days in Southern California. But there's also the ideology of disruption, which is a profoundly conservative notion, even though it comes in this revolutionary market rhetoric. It was the brainchild of Clayton Christensen, who is a Mormon management theorist who wrote The Innovator's Dilemma, which is a Bible among Silicon Valley entrepreneurs. And it's like a lot of management tracks in general. It's a very denuded social world, one in which all of the behavior that is determinative comes from heroic entrepreneurs. And they're banging up against the gray walls of conformity and regulation of government. And it's always and forever their job to disrupt. And what's interesting, I mean, this is a whole other (laughs) podcast probably, but disruptors don't actually create anything. And we see this most dramatically in the case of Sam Bankman-Fried. Crypto is just pure grift top to bottom. There is no underlying economic productive activity. And yet it's disruptive in this really superficial sense of allegedly challenging the state monopoly on currency and permitting people to have all kinds of anonymized financial transactions. It is in the right-wing Valhalla. You have maximum economic power and basically zeroed out government control. It's no wonder 
that libertarians throng to something like crypto. It's no wonder that also Democrats, as as we've been saying, all these major institutions were in love with Sam Bankman-Fried up until the moment that the wheels came off and it became clear the emperor had no clothes. Two mixed metaphors, sorry. And it's an interesting moment. And again, tech bros can command this kind of cultural deference because there's been literally for a generation, like in my industry, the media, there's just been unbelievably fawning coverage of anything that any major tech company says or does. You just have to go back to every release of the iPhone. It's a dumb product that is tinkered around the edges. And yet every time one is trotted out, it's on the front page of newspapers. It's a ridiculous model for journalism. And it's a ridiculous model to understand how business actually operates in public life. Yeah. Well, Jacob, you're writing a book on cryptocurrency. This obviously is a subject of interest to you as well. Yeah, I was I was very glad to hear Chris's assessment there. I mean, I think one thing about crypto that he said that deserves highlighting is there's no real productive economic activity associated with it, which is actually why sometimes when I speak to people in finance or business who are definitely not on the left, they find they find crypto really frustrating because it's a very poor allocation of capital. There have been billions of dollars poured into it. And we're getting very little for it. It's mostly funneling money from, as I say, from information poor retail investors, everyday people, up to the VC and tech capitalist class. One thing I think that crypto does highlight is that libertarian foundation or strain that runs through tech. There's a good book by David Columbia about Bitcoin and about its kind of right-wing ideological foundations. And now... Of course, crypto has grown. Well, now it's shrinking, but it, it grew to be sort of a more consumer product and and involve more companies, more countries, people all over the world. But that original anti-state, I want to do what I want, hardcore libertarian foundation, even sovereign citizen type attitude, which you do see in crypto, that's been there from the beginning. And I would argue that the people who really run crypto, because it's not the decentralized free market it's portrayed as, but rather it, it is kind of a closed group of men who basically run this industry. We know a lot of their names until recently, Sam Bankman-Free was one of them. They really just want the freedom to do what they want. And I think a lot of them are very ideologically motivated and you can hear it in some of them. Sam himself, I think was more of an operator, glad to play any side he could. But people like Jesse Powell, the CEO of Kraken, which is under investigation for violating sanctions. He's highly ideological. Anyone involved with Bitcoin in El Salvador, or just what are called Bitcoin maxis, Bitcoin maximalists, you hear all the hardcore libertarianism, the state can only be a tyrant, and I deserve to transact freely however I want, in whatever manner I want. That's really an underlying ethos and, and political foundation here. I think the larger grift of crypto is that it's brought a lot of people in with the traditional tech mantra of progress, of creative disruption, as Chris was talking about, that it could be a liberatory, even utopian force. And one reason why I glommed onto crypto as a critic was because I was seeing the same stuff 10 years ago with social media. And I wrote a book critical of tech power and social media and the growing tech surveillance state that came out in 2015. And at the time, Mark Zuckerberg was saying that Facebook would lead to world peace. He actually said that there was a section on Facebook's website where they highlighted people from warring countries who talk to each other, like Israelis and Palestinians and and folks like that, or people from India and Pakistan. So there was the same kind of it, it differed in some of the particulars, but the same kind of utopian rhetoric around social media. And of course, after 2016, especially that's when some tech journalists finally woke up 
and and started seeing that there are huge negative externalities and this is nothing like what we were promised. And I think that's the stage we're starting to enter into crypto right now. There's a lot of denialism. It's going to be very messy to clean up. There's a lot of problems to still play out. So we're not necessarily near the end game, but we're, we're kind of going through that cycle, I think, of, of disillusionment and maybe the public starting to realize what is actually being pushed on them here. Yeah. Well, and I think what you were saying about the idea of the, this ideology of I should be able to trade whatever I want or say whatever I want, it kind of fits to to your point, Chris, about libertarianism as kind of this juvenile reactionary philosophy. And all of this kind of goes, you could argue, goes back to Ayn Rand much even further than Silicon Valley or management. Everyone in tech's favorite book is Atlas Shrugged or some other Ayn Rand book. Yeah, it's it, it is kind of weird that the the market for libertarian thinking has not been disrupted, right? I mean, seventy-year-old <laughs> doorstop of a terribly written novel that is the go-to source of the gospel. I did speaking of the gospel, wanted to pick up the thread you mentioned earlier, Matt, about the libertarian right alliance and what's unstable about it. But I think it's also true that a lot you see a lot of crypto fans who are evangelical right-wingers. There's actually someone in my extended family who is a pastor who cashed in on crypto and bought a house in Idaho so he could live apart from the raving Democrats in Washington State where he was living previously. And David Columbia has also written on this element too. Crypto has become a kind of object of worship. Prosperity gospel in its own way. It is, yeah, this goes back to my book, which is <laughs> published in 2016. The evangelical political vision has become so fiercely individualist in a lot of ways, even though at the policy level, there's a lot of conflict between libertarianism and evangelicalism. Libertarians generally don't like to see drug laws enforced, they're pro-abortion, they're pro-gay marriage, all of these signal culture war issues obviously have made across time the evangelical libertarian alliance pretty dicey. But it is interesting in the realm of political economy, there isn't a lot of breathing room between the two movements that I can see at least. Yeah. Well, and actually, and C. Bannon actually has a cryptocurrency. As well. Oh, yeah. He has a long history in the industry, actually, yeah. Yeah. yeah, as a former Goldman Sachs executive. It really is illustrative. So much of the right-wing pseudo-populist narrative is directly contradicted by the people who say it <laughs> and their experience. I mean, you look at yeah. Josh Hawley. He's a multiple Ivy League degree person. You look at Ron DeSantis. J.D. Vance. Yeah. J.D. Vance and Peter Thiel himself. He wants to pay, pay people money not to go to college, but he himself has a graduate degree from Stanford. And you just go down the line. But it's interesting also further that one of the other things that they kind of have in common, that this sort of non-theist libertarian right has in common with the Christian right is that they have two things, I would say. One is kind of a, a hatred for acquiring knowledge through experimentation, through empiricism. To them, everything is about first principles. Now, they might differ on what the first principles are, but they're really not that different. So in other words, if you think that we should only have these life, liberty, property rights, it doesn't matter if you believe they came from God or if they just are inherent in the social contract. If that's your viewpoint and your epistemology is based on everything is about proving these things are true. 
not about modifying my viewpoints. And, and, and so there's a, there, there's a lot of overlap there, I would say. And if you don't mind, I think the way you see that in practice in tech is that I've experienced this in conversations with, with tech executives and you see it all the time. It's just that there's this notion, well, one, they don't read very much, to be honest, or, or are not very historically informed. So there's this notion that they come up with an idea, they are the first ones to ever think of that. And there's not, say, scholarly literature or some history or genealogy of ideas or anything like that. This plays out in a couple of ways that I'll present pretty quickly. But say in crypto, there, there's a joke. Nicholas Weaver, a computer scientist who's very vocally anti-crypto, jokes that crypto is speed running 500 years of financial history mm-hmm. and making all the same mistakes. And you see it now mm-hmm. they're talking about needing sort of almost central banks for crypto. Before Sam Bankman-Fried went down, he was providing kind of the JP Morgan life support role for crypto. Now it's CZ, who's the head of Binance, who's another pretty shadowy figure, I would argue. And just they're figuring out that you need to, they actually might need institutions and to replicate what we've spent hundreds of years through a lot of boom and bust cycles kind of figuring out. And another example is just take a look at Elon Musk with Twitter. He took over this company, which was deeply flawed before he even took it over. But, you know, he then sheds all these all the staff, basically forces out 70 to 80 percent of the company and claim he's this supposed free speech maximalist. And we're going to get rid of content moderation. Anyone can say what they want. But what you realize pretty quickly is actually like some of those systems are in place for a reason and that they serve certain purposes, even commercially important purposes. I think that Jack Dorsey is basically an anarcho-capitalist billionaire or or a libertarian-type billionaire, but and he had a lot of problems with how he managed Twitter, but he at least knew that you need to have a somewhat safe space for people and somewhat safe space for advertisers. So suddenly you kind of see Elon Musk rebuilding these systems or learning on the fly, maybe not willing to admit any of his mistakes. And I think this goes back to the idea that they just think that all these ideas originate from their head and that there's no precedent for them or no need to sort of question or investigate. Yeah, yeah. Sam Bankman-Fried famously said in an interview that he doesn't read books, he, that if, if you've written a book, as he put it, you fucked up, which anyone like me or Jason who have tried to sell books might have to concede that he is not wrong in that part. <laughs> we interviewed him for our forthcoming book, so we'll, we'll see oh, that in July, so before all this went down. Right, right. Yeah. But there's this definite sort of contempt. There, there's both the fake populism that they all express, even though they're millionaires and billionaires. And you're seeing this a lot right now with Musk and the people surrounding him. I wrote an article recently for the New Republic about David Sachs, who's a venture right. capitalist and kind of key Musk consigliere. Every day on Twitter, Sachs is sort of denouncing elites and blue checks and, and these kinds of folks. And it's like, dude, you are worth hundreds of millions of dollars and are helping reform Twitter in your best friend's image. You are the elite, of course, but mm-hmm. this is the kind of uh, the kind of false populism we've especially seen since the Trump era. But it works to some extent. I mean, obviously, Musk has a, a huge fan base, but there's a glaring hypocrisy there in how these people speak and then in how they act in their day-to-day lives and in their yeah. business lives, too. Right. Well, and it's also they actually don't understand that their market is actually small. Elon Musk, with all the changes and accounts that he's brought back, as far as I can tell, the only left-leaning account that he brought back was Kathy Griffin, who had impersonated him, the comedian. But other than that, he just is bringing back these tranches of right-wing trolls. And the thing about it, though, is that he, he seems to think that there is this large body of people who would want to use Twitter, but they feel oppressed 
by liberals on Twitter and by what he views as a leftist censorship mob on Twitter as the former uh, executives and employees. But the reality is there are already multiple sites out there trying to cater to this yeah. imaginary audience. So you've got, and, you know, and they're not doing well themselves either, which is they're not. Yeah. They you've got like, Donald Trump's. Why? Yeah. Control. Why would you want to create another gap from a market perspective? It just makes no sense. I, I yeah. think you're totally right. Also about that overestimating their audience. I mean, and I think that comes from a couple of things, but basically they're filter bubbles that these guys live in, right. which is both in real life. They're surrounded by just a, some close hangers on and sycophants. And Musk has this war room at Twitter where it's just people he's worked with for years or known for years. And they're all telling him, great job, buddy. And then online, some of these people are just way too online. Uh, right. They spend too much time on Twitter and they think their little world on Twitter is representative of the larger culture and of real life. It doesn't mean Twitter's not real. But it means that this sort of war against wokeness and on behalf of this certain vision of free speech is not something that necessarily, to use a tech term, scales. It's going on on Twitter among these certain circles, but it doesn't mean that this is something that 100 million Americans are really concerned about. I mean, this whole idea of blue checks. For most people, again, the market share of Twitter is minimal as a social media platform because most people don't like it. They think it's confusing or whatever it is, they don't like it. And they don't use it. So automatically that limits what we're talking about here. But Twitter uh, in 2009, I believe it was, had to invent the idea of a verified social media account right. because they got sued because a guy was impersonating, I think it was a St. Louis Cardinals manager. That's it, right. I forgot about that. And so Twitter was like, okay, fine. Look, we're going to create a system here where people can know if there's a blue check next to an account that it's actually that person and we verify that it's them, right? And so for most people who either come into contact with Twitter on some other site, like embedded on a website or something like that, or they see it on the news or something. For them, a blue check is actually positive. The idea that an account can be verified is real and legit. And so having a platform on which you've got celebrities, you've got sports people, you've got journalists, you've got people... And you know that it's really them talking to you. This is a great thing for Twitter. It is the core value of Twitter for its audience because, again, you talk to any regular person who does use Twitter, they think that it's great that they can go and find people that they like or have, or hate and, <laughs> and, and correspond too. with them and tell them what they think. And they know that it's really them. And so, so blue checks are, 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 if anything, a positive thing for most people. Most people probably don't even know what it is. But in the right-wing media space, blue check is actually a slur. If you read right-wing blogs, they are obsessed with the, what the blue checks on Twitter are saying today and how they're going to own the libs on them. And, and what's so hilarious is that usually the people who are writing these articles saying, oh, these blue checks are saying these horrible things. They also are verified themselves. Right. But nonetheless, they turned it into a, this obscure slur that no one has any reference to. Even the average Republican, if you went to Oklahoma and picked some person off the street and said, what do you think about the blue checks, sir? Right. He would look at you like you were nuts because no one knows what they're talking about. And But it's this it's just complete bubble and, and they all think it's real and they all think people are upset about it. But they're not. Yeah. And and we, we did just run a sort of control group test of 
the appeal of these kind of high-profile, digitally-empowered culture wars in the 2022 election. We saw all these things that were supposed to cut in the Republicans' favor, whether it be the uprising against critical race theory, the anti-woke agenda of Ron DeSantis, the don't-say-gay measures in schools, and they completely flopped. These are not things that most people with real lives understand students in schools are not choosing the gender identity of cat and having a litter box set up for them. It's just crazy shit. So, and I think you're going to see as the very narrow GOP House majority will embark on investigations of Hunter Biden's laptop and all of these intensely fetishized objects of their almost talismans for this belief system. And they're going to be dragged into the public sphere and people are going to be thinking, what the fuck? So yeah, it is It is a bubble. And one of the reasons I've never especially liked Twitter is that it does create this kind of filtered worldview where all these culture war issues are magnified out of all recognizable proportion. Absolutely. The whole cancel culture stuff. I don't know that Thomas Chatterton Williams has a career without Twitter. <laughs> I mean, he, I, I actually kind of liked his first memoir long ago. But yeah, there is this whole kind of, or Andrew Sullivan to take a much more egregious example, someone who lives and breathes this stuff and has concocted the most elaborate and racist persecution complexes you can ever imagine. So there's part of me that thinks if Elon Musk does actually destroy Twitter, I'm not going to be that sad. <laughs> I, I feel similarly, even though I find it pretty much essential for my work, unfortunately. But right, I, I think that that filtered view and that distorted view of what matters is pretty important because you have, especially on the right now, they're claiming the mantle of populism that they're actually in touch with everyday folks. They're even trying to say that Democrats have failed. You, you hear this sometimes, Democrats have failed their constituents on material issues, which is actually yeah. true. But the Republicans have no plans to do the right. same. They're just saying that. But in reality, how you see this stuff play out in, in the ridiculous culture warring that people didn't seem to care about too much in the most recent elections or on Twitter, it, it does show a, a, quite a distortion and really an inability to focus on broad issues that really matter. I mean, one small example is just, this happens every day, but Abigail Schreier, I believe is her name. She's wrote a, a book that's broadly considered transphobic about trans youth. She's big on the culture warring right. She posted a photo of herself at a magazine stand, I believe at an airport, dozens of magazines on the shelf. She said, "What? how Elon Musk is revolutionizing Twitter is the most important story going right now. None of these magazines are, are talking about it. Well, a couple things. I mean, some of those magazines are like food and garden. And also magazines have long lead times, as Chris well knows. Yes. And But also that just shows that you think that's the most important thing going on in America right now is what Musk is doing to Twitter, which to me is running it into the ground. Right. He's revolutionizing it. Either way, I think it's a story that certainly matters and deserves coverage. But I would never call it the most important thing going on in tech in American society right now. It's a little ridiculous. Right. Certainly the fate of Twitter matters. But I think that's the blinkered view you see a lot. I've seen this also recently with the SBF coverage because it's become quickly politicized. SBF was a big Democratic donor. I was very glad Chris mentioned that his one of his right-hand people was a big Republican donor. They played both sides very savvily, but it's being cast as the media and Democrats covered for SBF. They enabled him. They gave him power. When in reality, the story is nothing like that. First of all, there are many bad actors in crypto, but it's being put through this narrow sort of lens of that. And then you also have a lot of people, for example, David Sachs, and I sort of called him out on this on Twitter. He was 
making fun of an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal that tried to sort of link SBF to MAGA or something like that. It didn't really matter because, as I said online, the Wall Street Journal has actually done a lot of great news reporting investigations into FTX in the last couple of weeks. I've been reading it every day. That they might have a few op-eds that are kind of ridiculous doesn't really matter to me or concern me. And you see this also with the New York Times. There's this notion that people, maybe it's a lack of media literacy. Maybe it's just deliberate bad faith. Maybe it's also these filter bubbles. People think, why is the New York Times reporting on David Portnoy, this sort of boorish gambling booster as a problem and not SBF as the same type of person? Like these publications cover many issues and publish hundreds or thousands of articles per week. So I actually think in a lot of ways, the New York Times and Wall Street Journal, for example, are, are doing their job on the SBF story. But anything now can be just sort of distorted and twisted through this lens on Twitter where you can make this claim or stake out this claim, SBF is just a democratic op, basically. And you'll have powerful people or people with large followings who are really ready to take that up and rebroadcast it to their own filter bubble of an audience. And then that's how kind of misinformation spreads. Mm -hmm. It's ideological whataboutism. Exactly. Yeah, that's a more concise way of putting it. Thank you. Yeah, that why isn't everyone as unhealthily obsessed with this subject as I am? Exactly. (laughs) And I get that all the time. Why aren't you writing about traditional finance? I'm like, well, there are a lot of great people writing about the TradFi, as they call it, which is much bigger, Mm -hmm. of course, than crypto. But, you know, right now, crypto is my beat. And there's a lot of messy stuff to write about there. And Mm -hmm. this extends to how people treat media. I don't think they always necessarily see the both the political economy of media and that people work for corporations. Sometimes you don't always have control over what you cover or when, but also there are competing influences and priorities, and this is how it works. Yeah, so we've mentioned Sam Bankman-Fried a number of times, but for people who don't know, what was it that FTX was doing? Just just to clarify for people who don't know. (laughs) Sure. This will be quick. (laughs) I mean, basically it was a fraud, but Sam Sam was deeply involved in the effective altruism movement. He was sort of converted in college at MIT, which basically says, make as much money as you can so you can give it all away. And you had to, you know, be the best philanthropist, not necessarily existing NGOs or the government. So Sam fell under the spell of effective altruism, or at least he's sort of forsaken it recently. It's really hard to know. What's clear, I prefer not to psychologize him. I think what's clear is just what he's done, which is misappropriated vast amount of funds. But he started, just a quick capsule history, he started at a trading, he started at Jane Street, he was a quant, trading traditional equities and securities And then he discovered sort of an arbitrage opportunity in the crypto markets where he was buying Bitcoin on some Western exchanges and then selling it at higher, slightly higher prices in Japan and some Asian exchanges. And supposedly he made millions of dollars that way. He started a research or a trading firm called Alameda, which basically evolved into a hedge fund. And then later he started FTX, which was an exchange where everyday people were supposed to be able to trade. But it was mostly based overseas where... They could offer much more risky products, a lot of leverage. Basically, you could borrow money to make to risk more. And it was mostly about futures and derivatives products where you were betting on the direction that crypto would go. You weren't just buying Bitcoin. You were actually betting on the movements of crypto, which are super volatile. So simple explanation of all this really is that he had these two companies, both very big in their respective fields, trading on the sort of hedge fund crypto side and then trading for regular customers. And there was supposed to be this firewall between them. It did not exist. Money was passing back and forth freely. They basically looted their depositors, their main FTX customers' money to go 
gamble with at, at Alameda and cover some holes when Alameda made a lot of bad decisions. And we can talk about how it all kind of came apart and came into view recently. But that that's the basic thing. If he was robbing one end of his company, which he shouldn't even have been touching that money, to make really reckless bets through Alameda. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, and and trying to basically buy his way into both political parties. Oh, yeah, that's one thing we need to make clear, which is that perhaps in an unprecedented way, actually, Sam was really openly manipulating the political system. I mean, or just call it lobbying. I mean, it's not necessarily Mm -hmm. illegal, but he was... He was everywhere. I mean, he obviously he was the second biggest donor, as Chris said, to the Democrats in the 2020 cycle. He sort of fancifully started talking about donating a billion dollars up to a billion in the 2024. Not coincidentally, though, he, he backed off from that a couple months ago. And over the summer, he wound down one of his packs. But he and his executives were donating to both sides. They're meeting with everyone. They're quite open about the fact that they want the CFTC to regulate crypto and not the SEC. The CFTC is a much smaller budget. It's much more crypto friendly. Its commissioners uh, are more posting selfies with Sam. So he was quite openly pursuing a kind of regulatory capture. There's a very quickly revolving door between government and crypto. There have been many people from Democratic and Republican administrations who have gone to work in crypto because you can get 10x the salary off the bat, if not much more. And so, and also there was just no, there was no uh, appealing to sort of consumer interests or consumer protection. What you would have CFTC commissioners go on these listening tours, as they called them, but they're really just meeting with crypto companies. They weren't meeting with consumer protection groups or Americans for Financial Reform, which is a group that I've talked to that's very critical of crypto. It was very one-sided. So Sam could get away with this as long as crypto was seen as part of the bright future of finance. Everyone kind of thought he was this awkward but charming, cherubic guy. Sam really was the person who was supposed to make crypto safe for people. He was obviously trying to manipulate the rules and the regulations so that he could bring his company more onshore. There was a there's an FTX US, but it was much smaller than the FTX Global. So Sam was trying to game the system. It was all very open, but it was all kind of tolerated and welcomed. I mean, there are other people in the industry who quietly resented him. But what he was doing was trying to legalize the casino and bring it onshore. And if he had held on for a few more months, especially with the new Republican Congress, albeit a very closely divided one. He might have succeeded because he has some Democrats on his side, too, like Kristen Gillibrand. Mm-hmm. There was even a bill that was being considered that some people called Sam's bill. And so I don't know if you've ever I mean, people who are more versed in political history might be able to draw other examples. But it was pretty stunning how open this was. My co-author Ben and I over the summer went to D.C. and had some basically off the record background meetings. Pretty much everyone had spoken to Sam or someone from his companies that we met with. These are people on Capitol Hill, staffers and folks like that. Or at least he had someone from his side had preceded us into those rooms. And it was pretty stunning to watch that play out. Obviously, it's all falling apart now. I am a little worried that we'll get bad regulation now, but we'll see what happens. Yeah, well, you mentioned recent political history. And the last bill I remember coming under that kind of designation was the Graham leach Bliley bill, which basically repealed the Glass-Steagall regulations on derivatives trading. And that was called Sandy's bill because of Sandy Weil, who Wall Street banker who aggressively lobbied for it. And 
look how that turned out. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that's a good comparison also because we're almost, I mean, look, people are, everyday people are really losing money. And I have uh, one thing in my writing I try to do is I have a lot of sympathy for everyday retail traders, as they're called, because lots of people bought into crypto for various reasons. They're financially desperate. They believe the hype, whatever else. And why not when everyone was saying this was the right thing to do and celebrities and CNBC and everyone else were saying this can only go up just like the subprime before subprime. Mm -hmm. And the housing crisis. But we actually kind of dodged a bullet that crypto, that FTX went down when it did. Because Sam in particular was also trying, besides just generally lobbying Congress and and being a supporter of the Cynthia Loomis Gillibrand bill, he really wanted to expand his derivatives trading business into the U.S. through the CFTC and wanted to kind of have the same sort of access to federal resources, to the Fed itself and other resources as traditional Wall Street derivatives trading. So the great fear, I think, with a lot of crypto skeptics and critics and even lawmakers is that it gets into the mainstream financial system. And a lot of people who have retirement accounts who don't even directly invest in crypto become exposed to it. And yeah, the Ottawa Teachers Union. Yeah, um, you already yeah. have a pension from, from Canada, which lost $200 million, I believe, investing in FTX. There's a pension fund in Virginia, a public pension fund that's investing in what's called yield farming, which... Is just another risky form of crypto investment. So you already had some of this institutional money coming in. And Sam was the guy who institutional investors felt safe with. And if he got his hooks into the CFTC and was really allowed to do all this stuff, we'd be in big trouble, I think. And another positive there is also that crypto wants what's called an ETF, an exchange traded fund, which is basically another way of having exposure to crypto. They really want a Bitcoin ETF. And that would be another way to bring in more money into the casino without people directly buying Bitcoin. And the SEC, I think, to its credit, has repeatedly rejected the ETF. They pretty much copy and paste the rejection each time, no matter who's filing for one. And they basically say these are manipulated markets. And the stable coins like Tether cannot be trusted. And they're right. And we're fortunate that this kind of stopped or at least lost its momentum where it did. Because if this stuff went forward in, in, in the way that the crypto industry wanted to, a year from now, some years from now, you'd have this stuff in everyone's financial portfolios and retirement portfolios, at least yeah, indirectly. Is. And we'd be in big trouble when this goes down again. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's true. And there's kind of a vulnerability here, and maybe we'll wrap on this topic here, and that is the the ideology of corporate neoliberalism and institutional capture. In other words, it means that anyone with large sums of money can capture a neoliberal institution. And you're seeing that with the Saudi government and various Ivy League schools. You're seeing and Twitter. That. They're they're heavily invested in Twitter. Yeah, yeah. I wrote yeah. a piece for the New Republic uh, uh, under Chris about the Saudi relationship with Twitter, which has certainly not improved. I mean, Jack yeah. met with MBS, and yeah. but I, I won't go off on that rant. <laughs> yeah, and various Republican donors have done this with universities such as George Mason University in Virginia, most yeah. famously. But they've also done it with media as well, not just with Elon Musk. But you know, you look at the way that hedge funds have basically completely captured and sucked up the local news industry, both in the newspapers and on the side of television stations. And because neoliberalism is so institutionally worshipful, it has no real defense against this. So maybe if we can, Chris, if you can talk about neoliberalism from that aspect, and then Jacob, maybe wrap it up with the idea of effective altruism and talk about that a little bit more. So go ahead, Chris. Oh, yeah. I mean, the model of neoliberalism going back to the rise of the Democratic Leadership Council in the 
late 80s and early 90s was, first of all, Democrats weren't winning the presidency. They needed to reset and they needed to develop a much more pro-business ideology. And the way they did that was basically taking a host of former social goods, like affordable housing, like public education, and privatizing them, giving them, delivering them into models of market distribution, sometimes with some government guidance and underwriting, but very frequently not. And so you have, this is why the charter school movement and school privatization were initiatives under the Obama White House. And it is just the fallback ideology of for neoliberalism. And it's also why the Obama White House did such an indefensibly horrible job of cleaning up after the 2008 financial meltdown. You got a very sort of paper tigerish kind of body of legislation to regulate financial markets. And we're now kind of seeing the outcome of that failure with the rise of crypto. And you had just a baseline failure to prosecute any banker for criminal activity, which I would argue, I mean, I'm not a fan of carceral justice or the ideology of deterrence, but I think in Wall Street, I will make an exception. (laughs) Because maybe, just maybe, Sam Bankman-Fried might not have happened the way it did. So it is important, and this goes back to the idea of the importance of government and a regulatory state serving the public interest. I mean, the other big captive agency that never gets talked about because it's everywhere is the Federal Reserve. (laughs) It is owned and operated for all intents and purposes by the investment community. There is no one from labor unions who gets a see it on the Federal Reserve Board. And you, and again, we're seeing this play out in real time with Jerome Powell very consciously and overtly trying to tame inflation by lowering wages. Who does that benefit? <laughs> it shouldn't be hard to figure out. So yeah, we, we are living in an age where neoliberalism has enabled the market capture of social goods across the board. And What that means in practical terms at moments like this is that there's no meaningful accountability. Well, and it also it destroys the one thing that neoliberalism claimed it is as its superior virtue, which was meritocracy. But if in a system where the institutions are completely captured, there is no meritocracy because it's who you know. Yeah, it's important. I will jump in and be pedantic here. Meritocracy was always a grift. Michael Young wrote. The Rise of the Meritocracy in 1958 as a British socialist explaining the rise of civil service testing. And he just said it is designed to siphon off the talented leadership of the working class and make them hostage. Mm -hmm. So when we, being Americans, we just naively adopted the ideal of meritocracy as a self-evident good. It was never intended as as its originator explained in a full-length book. It was never meant as a social virtue. It was quite the opposite. It was a means of perpetuating the rule of capital over the interest of workers. And of course, now, Michael Young's book, The Rise of Meritocracy, actually, there's a management imprint that has released it in the United States. That's how badly we have misunderstood the concept. Anyway, Mm. that's all a side rant. But I would argue that meritocracy is operating just the way it was intended to. I mean, 
Sam Bankman-Fried, Exhibit A of a Child in the Meritocracy. Both of his parents were law school professors. He was, again, history's golden boy. He was on this grooved path to moguldom. And I will furnish now a segue out of my rant into Jacob's portion. It is what empowers the idea of effective altruism. This new generation of 30-something tech bros are reinventing ethics because no one evidently in history has ever thought to do that. I, I agree. And I think, first of all, that, that idea that there's no accountability, whether it's legal or even civil, for both corporate malfeasance and political is certainly a defining feature of, I mean, the last 20 years, you can go back as far as you want, but it, it contributes to the, both the disenchantment with politics that a lot of people feel and then you get people like Sam Bankman-Fried, who, as Chris said, I mean, a lot of people w- would cite his pedigree, even his parents, who are law professors. Of Matt, Matt Iglesias did. Right? Yeah, his <laughs> dad is a, is a tax scholar, which you could take a couple different ways, considering mm-hmm. his son was running an offshore grift the way he was. And his dad, Joseph Bankman-Fried, worked for FTX. I mean, I'm not saying he was up to no good. So, I mean, like all good fraudsters, SBF kept the circle small. But just because he came from good stock or something like that doesn't mean he can't be an unethical actor. And then I think what you see then with effective altruism and the long-termism variant that SBF supposedly subscribed to is that as products of the elite, we kind of know best and, and we know how to make a lot of money and then how to distribute properly. In his case, he thought he was ensuring the long-term survival of the human race. I mean, he expressed some concerns about AI, but his two main issues were pandemic preparedness and crypto. And just to show how this is all kind of nonsense or a hustle, I think, look at his colleague, Ryan Salome who was the Republican equivalent to SBF's Democratic donor. I got in a, a small argument with Ryan and SBF about this on Twitter a couple of months ago because someone pointed out that Ryan Salome was donating money. He was also touting pandemic preparedness, ostensibly in line with this effective altruism idea. And But he he gave a bunch of money to Republican politicians who didn't who were COVID denialists, basically, and didn't believe in COVID mitigation measures. So why don't people like Sam Bankman-Fried promote universal health care, which to me, counts as a very effective pandemic mitigation measure and certainly something that could help the public. But there's this assumption... Not to jump in again, but also climate change, right? Yeah, of course. Crypto is a horrible extraction model for the carbon. It's one of the worst carbon producing... You can't call it an industry because it doesn't make anything, but yet it does create massive amounts of carbon. And this never figures into the effective altruism picture at all, because effective altruism at bottom is a way to just once more give billionaires a blank check to do whatever the hell they want. Yeah. And I I think some some people act like, oh, well, he just kind of got ahead of his skis and didn't know what he was doing. But it really is this this self this very self-justifying philosophy of greed. And there's a pretty good article in New York Magazine by Eric Levitz in their recent FTX package about effective altruism and Will McCaskill, who was the guy who served the guy and got SPF into all this. And they even talk about whether it's okay to be a banker or something and things like that. But you know, at bottom, I think effective altruism can justify anything, or at least sort of deputize its adherence to justify anything. Will McCaskill claims he's horrified by what SBF did, but you know, he was the one who supposedly told SBF at over lunch at, when he was an undergrad at MIT, "Hey, you love animals and care about animal welfare. You should actually make a lot of money in finance, and then you can contribute to, to animal welfare and other causes." 
And so, I mean, it's a short line from there to predatory types of finance or crypto, which is less than a negative sum game, not even a zero sum game. So there's certainly aspects of effective altruism you can go into if you want to take it seriously as a philosophy. But again, it's sort of a libertarian style abandonment of politics and arrogation of power to people with money or who already have power, who are presumed to be able to be the best kind of stewards of society if they even claim to care about society. You remind me, I have the misfortune of living in Washington, which has the most artificial constituency for libertarianism on the planet. Again, talk about filters. In reality, libertarians would be lucky to claim 1% support in the general population. But because of the Koch brothers, because of Cato Institute, because of Reason Magazine, all of these things that are based in Washington, you run into libertarians all the time here. And one of them in his cups once said to me, well, libertarian is just an anarchist who got rich. (laughs) (laughs) And that is... I think one way to explain effective altruism. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, I think of it as basically Ayn Rand run through a John Rawls filter. And nothing good can come from that. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, appreciate you guys being here today. We could probably do this all day. So Jacob, he's on Twitter at Silverman Jacob. And then his book, Easy Money, is going to be coming out next summer, right? Is that right? That's right. Okay, and you can pre-order it now. And then Chris Lehman, who is the Washington Bureau Chief at The Nation, he is also on Twitter, although against his will, apparently. I, I, I did launch a Mastodon account last week, so we'll see. <laughs> yeah, all right. And so that's, and for those listening, that's L-E-H-M-A-N-N, Chris. All right, well, thank you, gentlemen, and look forward to seeing all the stuff you're coming out with in the future. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And uh, that's our show today. And uh, so if you want to get a transcript and video and audio of this, please go to theoryofchange.show. And that will take you to the section on flux.community for the podcast. And if you like what we're doing here and you want to keep more of it, please go to patreon.com slash discoverflux. I'm Matthew Sheffield. Thanks for being here. And we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. Theory of Change is made possible thanks to people like you. If you liked what you heard today, please be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and leave a nice review. That actually is really helpful. And if you really want to support the show, please click on one of the donate links that are in the show notes. High quality content doesn't create itself, so you can really do something great from my standpoint by showing financial support. Theory of Change is part of the Flux Media Network. We're a new media organization providing in-depth podcasts and articles about politics, religion, media, and technology. The website address is flux.community. And if you'd like to visit the Theory of Change section, just go to theoryofchange.show and you'll go right to the episode archives. I'm Matthew Sheffield. Let's do this again.